Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, July 1st, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, at inquiringshow.tumblr.com, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. And you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. Today's episode is sponsored by Audible. With an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more, get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at audible.com slash inquiringminds. When I say the word Greenpeace, what does that conjure up for you? I think about the the protests against like oil tankers and the really you know, public displays of of getting out there to draw media attention to some environmental issue. Yeah, I think about people chaining themselves to, yeah, oil rigs or, tan- you know, f- big fishing vessels or, you know, baby seals, <laughs> you know, what, what have you, sort of active uh, individuals who are trying to protest uh, harm to the environment. And in each of these cases, I've been thinking about it, it involves the ocean in some way. And that makes sense. You know, a majority of our planet is actually ocean. So that could be why that there is a focus on protecting things and it's that are certainly under it. threat. It's certainly Ooh. under threat. So when I was pitched a book by the captain of the famous Greenpeace ship, the Rainbow Warrior, I have to say I was pretty intrigued. And I wondered what it would be like to be a captain of the ship. And then I found out that he's been the captain of that ship for like 30 years. Whoa. So he has seen the organization shift and change and grow and, you know, mutate in a lot of ways. And yet he's been on the front lines ever since. I think it would be fascinating to talk of, A, captains always have stories. Right. Like 100%. Sailors, captains, how can you go wrong? Yeah, 100%. But the other thing is, I'm really curious how science informs Greenpeace's positions. Because my sort of outsider perspective, I've never really talked to anyone at Greenpeace, is they have this like solid, it's such core identity, like oil bad, you know, anything that harms the environment bad, and we're going to put our lives on the line. That's how bad it is. I really wonder where like science and their where they get their information. And also whether they actually aid scientists. Like I can imagine they can maybe get to places of the world that are hard to get to and strap on a couple scientists and all of a sudden you can take them uh, to places where it's hard to gather data. 
But this week's show isn't so much about science as it is about policy change and what happens when you decide to take action uh, to protect the environment in particular. But you'll hear stories of uh, Russian prisons and ship bombings and painting seal cubs and sailing with Pete Seeger and falling in love and the duties of a good ship captain. Wait, well, what, what? not all of those things. All of those things are in the book. So I have to say, before you do anything else, you should go and get this book. It's awesome. It's called Greenpeace, Captain, My Adventures in Protecting the Future of Our Planet by Peter Wilcox and Ronald Weiss. But if that's not enough of a plug, listen to the interview and I guarantee you'll be looking for that book on Amazon shortly after. Really? Russian prisons? Yeah. Like in 2013. Oh my goodness. I'm going to listen to this interview. But before we get to the interview, I think we should address one more thing that has been in the news this week. In particular, just in the last day or so, uh, there has been a letter published by and signed by over 100 Nobel laureates in science. I assume they're all scientists. I haven't actually gone and looked at their credentials, Um, but I'm I'm assuming they're scientists. Uh, And they've essentially taken on Greenpeace's stand on genetically modified organisms, in particular, golden rice. So this is a a type of genetically engineered rice that the letter um, suggests could be a excellent cure for a lot of the problems that uh, children die from in very poor countries. So I do want to say that that's not something that I covered in my interview with the Greenpeace captain, since of course, this letter came out after the interview had happened. Um, And also because I didn't think that he would be an expert on that particular topic. And so I didn't feel it was appropriate for me to talk to him about Greenpeace's stance on things other than what he was personally involved in. What was striking to me is how strongly worded the letter was from these Nobel laureates. They really put Greenpeace on blast, as it were, saying that their stance was just straight up anti-science. I was surprised with um, that strength. What did you think? I mean, I totally agree. And, you know, between you and me and our listeners, there was a time when I thought, well, should we really run this interview? Because this is really call into question, you know, everything that we've talked about on the show. And I still, you know, after giving it quite a bit of thought, come to the conclusion that really this doesn't diminish anything that Peter Wilcox has done, uh, or, you know, at least in my eyes, uh, you know, his expertise, and which is why we talked to him on the show. And, you know, that Greenpeace did respond very quickly, uh, suggesting that the data are still out in terms of the efficacy of golden rice, since it's not readily available. And there have been other sources that have suggested that it's not the actions of Greenpeace that have prevented golden rice from being readily available. So if it really is this cure-all, you know, is it is it really Greenpeace's fault that it's not out there? Um, so, you know, I think this is still a story that we need to track and follow and understand what the effect of Greenpeace's actions are. Uh, and, you know, but, but certainly it is troubling, of course, when a organization that is based in science, supposedly, and, you know, is is, is pro-science, does take a stand on something like GMOs uh, that seems very you know, kind of black and white and not, you know, not taking into account the nuances. But, you know, this is not something that I think we should talk about without giving Greenpeace and uh, GMO scientists an opportunity to respond. To be fair, Greenpeace's response also is not any sort of apology. They don't back down. 
as they indicate in their response that they feel like companies are overhyping Golden Rice. So I think this battle is going to continue on for a, a long time. Um, there are websites up with both Greenpeace's response. There's a website up with uh, that the Nobel laureates have put information on the Golden Rice and their sort of position. And as it stands right now, it's up to 110 Nobel laureates. It's uh, hard to argue with the weight of that medal, but it seems like this is going to be a conversation we're going to have to tackle in another time. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not surprised, of course, that Greenpeace uh, is not backing down because they are an activist organization. So I (laughs) I would be very surprised if they were like, oh, oops, my bad. But I also think that this is a conversation that is very important to have. And I think traditionally there has been a big uh, disconnect between what people who, you know, are pro-environment and anti-corporation and in that, in, in many ways, very much pro-science, you know, think about genetic engineering and genetically modified foods um, and what the data have shown uh, from the perspective of science. So I actually think this is a really important conversation to have. Uh, I think I hope it will be enlightening, uh, you know, to all sides and that we'll be able to move beyond this kind of, you know, head in the sand argument that just we should ban GMOs outright because they're GMOs. Let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Peter Wilcox. This episode is sponsored by Audible with an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. It lets you listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want, including recent guest books, Grunt by Mary Roach and The Gene by Siddhartha Mukherjee. Audible is offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial by signing up at audible.com slash inquiringminds. And Audible also has the great listen guarantee. If you decide you don't like the book you chose, no worries. You can exchange any book you aren't happy with for another title anytime, no questions asked. Once again, that's audible.com slash inquiring minds. Hey, Inquiring Minds listeners, another podcast you might like is called Flash Forward. Flash Forward is a show about the future produced by our good friend Rose Evelith. Every week they take you on a possible future scenario and try to really overthink how it might happen and what it might look like. Every episode starts with an audio field trip into the future and then talks to scientists, engineers, artists, science fiction writers, and so many more. So far, they've looked at everything from the existence of artificial wombs to what would happen if space pirates dragged a second moon to the Earth. Spoiler alert, nothing good. They recently did an episode about what it would be like if everyone could know the exact date on which they will die. It's fun, it's weird, and we think you might like it. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Peter Wilcox. Thank you very much. So your book starts out with a vignette in which you talk about a time in which your ship was bombed. Uh, It was a pretty dramatic story. So tell us about that. You're in New Zealand in 1985. Take us back to what happened. Well, 1985 was our year of protesting nuclear testing in the Pacific. We started out in the Marshall Islands where the U.S. had been uh, testing nuclear weapons since 1948, which is a dramatic story all by itself. After World War II, the conquered countries were given as trusts to other members of the UN. In Germany's case, it was administered by Russia, France, Great Britain, and the US. 
On the Pacific side, and, and I should say those were general trusts that were overseen by the uh, UN General Assembly. On the Pacific side, the islands of the Pacific were given a strategic trust to the U.S. alone, meaning also meaning that as a strategic trust, they were overseen by the Security Council where the U.S. has veto power. The mandates of the trust were to protect the people, educate them, improve their economies, and bring them into the 20th century. In 1948, the U.S. began testing nuclear weapons in the Pacific, in Bikini, which I'm sure everybody's heard about. For these tests, the people of Rangalap Atoll, which is an atoll about 150 miles away, were moved off their atoll uh, so that they wouldn't be caught in the fallout area. In 1955, the U.S. developed a hydrogen bomb. And for the Bravo shot, which was in March of 1959, they exploded a device that was a thousand times more powerful than the bombs that landed on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It was a 20 megaton bomb. Keep in mind now that most intercontinental ballistic missiles are carry six to eight 20 megaton warheads. From a distance of 150 miles, or roughly the distance from San Francisco to Sacramento, the people of Rangelap could not only hear the explosion but feel the heat from it at 10 o'clock in the morning in, in the tropics. Within a few hours, it started snowing radioactive fallout, and by the next day, they were all suffering from first-degree radiation sickness. Their skin was peeling off, their hair was falling out, uh, they are vomiting, diarrhea, and they were in desperate condition. The U.S. the next day sent some... Uh, officers from the Navy to see what was going on, and they realized that if they didn't move the people off the atoll, they would all die there quite quickly. So they did. The next day, took them about 150 miles to the south to Kwajalein Island, where they lived for the next three years. During that time, their background radiation levels went down, but when they, they decided to move them back to Ronglap after three years, this is to see what would happen. And what we know now, thanks to the research of uh, Foreign Minister Tony de Broom of the Marshall Islands, it was not a mistake. The military had decided to use the people quite intentionally as guinea pigs to see what would happen with the radioactive fallout, as was described in a document found by Tony, which was called Project 4.0. The people went back to Rongelap. Their background radiation levels went up, and over the next 20 years, uh, experienced worse and worse health problems. There was premature aging in the adults. There were children born with uh, st uh, stunted growth and mental retardation. The worst people affected were the women and their reproductive health. Many had six, seven, eight miscarriages. Some had jellyfish babies, which is exactly what it sounds like embryos born unformed that would live for a few minutes out of the womb and then die. After a generation of this, and after a generation of monitoring, not treating, by the U.S. scientists, uh, in 1980, the people asked their government and the U.S. government to move them from Rongelap. Now, this is a society where land rights are integral to the identity of the people. Uh, in Marshallese society, they have an interesting uh, arrangement. The men run the government, but women own the land. Uh, it's a nice balance of power. But they, regardless of this, they asked to be moved. The U.S., who had just spent approximately $100 million back in those days, it was some money, 
clean in a in a failed attempt to clean up Bikini Atoll, didn't want to spend the money in Rongelap and said no that they were fine, they didn't need to go. And their own government, which was after thirty years of US rule, was completely dependent on their economy to US foreign aid. They said no. When we came in nineteen eighty five uh, the Rongelap Islanders approached us and asked if we would move them to a safe place, and we did. Now, the first Rainbow Warrior was about one-half the size of the current Rainbow Warrior. She was just barely 150 feet. Well, tell our listeners what the Rainbow Warrior is in case they're not familiar with it. Ah, right. Well, Rainbow Warriors, the name of the boat that Greenpeace has now had three. The first one was purchased in 1978, was as I'm about to tell, was blown up by the French government in 1985. And the second one sailed until 2011 and is now a hospital ship in the inland waters of Bangladesh. The third one is uh, the first boat Greenpeace has intentionally built for its own use, was actually designed and built as a sailboat. So we're getting quite good sailing out of it, which allows us to burn less fossil fuels. Uh, back to the story of Rongelap, we moved them, which was a major undertaking on such a small boat. We had two trips where we had approximately 150 people on the boat. We moved all their building materials, the two-by-four, the plywood, the corrugated roofing. We didn't take any of the livestock. Uh, they had chickens and, I guess, some pigs. They wanted to leave them there. And we took everybody from Rongelap. Uh, the next year... Interestingly enough, President Reagan decided that the Marshallese people could become independent and at the same time said, you're either going to agree to our to independence and ending the trust agreement, or you won't receive any more aid from the U.S. Part of that agreement was the Marshallese had to give up their right to sue for radioactive damages caused by the U.S. testing program. Today... Uh, in the Marshalls, Kwajalein, which is the biggest coral atoll in the world, is uh, the splashdown range for Star Wars testing. And there's an island uh, called Kwajalein, which the U.S. scientists live on. It's got a nine-hole golf course, a movie theater, swimming pool, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And about two miles away, there's Ebai, which at 77 acres and having 10,000 people living there is called the slum of the Pacific. It had, at the time when I was there, the highest teenage suicide rate in the world. And this is a result of our trust agreement with the Marshallese. It's astounding to me that, A, we did it in the first place. There was no, never any question that it was sometime an accident, as the U.S. claimed at the time. We know from the U.S. servicemen who were on Rongerick, a few miles away from Rongelap, that there was no wind shift, ever. It was a purely intentional nuking of a group of people so that we could understand the effects of radioactive fallout. And what's so discouraging for me today is not only knowing that, but really seeing the attitude under the current administration has not really changed at all towards the Marshallese people. Uh, we're still trying to get out from underneath any damages that we created from the nuclear testing. So how do we get from there to the French involvement and ultimately what happened uh, to the first Rainbow Warrior? Right. Well, we sailed uh, down to New Zealand. 
Uh, we had just refitted the first Rainbow Warrior with sails. Uh, we knew we were going out to the Pacific, and after three years of lobbying, Greenpeace finally agreed to let us put sails on the boat. Uh, we got down to New Zealand, which we were all very excited about because New Zealand felt like a little bit like coming home. It was about to go nuclear-free. It hadn't quite yet, but it was only a matter of time. About four days after we got there, at quarter of twelve one night, the boat shook violently. I looked out the forward porthole, and when I saw the lights of the dock, I thought, well, I mean, I thought we had been involved with a collision at sea, but I realized we weren't. We were in a safe place, and it wasn't my fault. But things didn't sound right, so I got up, and it took me about 40 seconds to get to the engine room door and see that the boat was completely flooded. The water was about two feet from the deck level that we were standing on and coming up fast. My original initial concern was for the people in the after accommodation, so I went there, saw the chief mate who confirmed everybody was up, and that's when the second bomb went off. Now, when the first bomb had gone off, the chief mate, the chief engineer, our ship's photographer, Fernando Pereira, and a few other people had been sitting around in the mess having a last drink before going to bed. Fernando had just enough time to get down to his cabin to collect his camera gear when the second bomb went off, and it trapped him in his cabin, and he drowned. Uh, we were questioned by the police that night. I identified his body so that there was no, no question what had happened. And really, the initial reaction of the New Zealand police, besides just being absolutely furious, was that they suspected that we had probably done it for some sort of misguided promotional value. It wasn't until that they saw that the bombs were placed outside the hull and that the explosion had pushed the plates inwards that they started to believe maybe we hadn't done it. Well, what had happened was the night before, at about 9 o'clock or so, remember this is wintertime in New Zealand, it's July, it was dark at 5.30 or 6. A couple French commandos had taken a rubber boat across the harbor with an outboard, tied up on the pier across from us, dove underneath the water and planted the bombs on the ship, swum back to their boat on, again underwater, uh, and left, motored back across the harbor. When they got there, uh, they took the outboard motor, dropped it in the water, pulled the rubber boat halfway up the beach and left it, jumped into a waiting camper van and drove away. Local New Zealanders at the yacht club who had been disturbed by some thievery had a bit of a vigilante committee keeping an eye out. So they immediately thought something was up to no good and they copied down the license plate of the van. It wasn't until the next morning when they woke up to the news that the Rainbow Warrior had been bombed that they immediately called up Auckland police. And the next day, uh, a Swiss couple returned the camper van to the airport requesting a day's back on their month-long rental because her uncle was sick in Switzerland and they had to fly home. Well, there was a note underneath the desk that said if the camper van comes back, call the police immediately. They did. They detained the couple. They questioned them all day, told me later that things didn't add up and they smelled a rat, but put them in a hotel that night saying, look, we're really sorry order room service, the hotel's on us, use the telephone, just don't leave the room. And the French, the Swiss couple immediately went into the hotel room, called up DSEG headquarters in Paris and said, well, we did the job, but we've been delayed. We'll be home tomorrow. The police recorded all of it. I mean, this was the, the best of the 
French intelligence, and they they basically gave themselves up. The next, uh, I guess, a couple days later, they were indicted. And about a month later, they copped a plea to second-degree murder, pleading guilty, and received a 10-year sentence. But after two years, French longshoremen refused to unload New Zealand agricultural products coming into the EC. So New Zealand released them, and they went back to France. But so why would the French have gotten involved? Well, our next stop on the tour was French Polynesia, where they had also been testing nuclear weapons. As I said, 1985 was our year of protesting nuclear weapons testing in the Pacific. First was the American protest at first was the American testing site in the Marshall Islands. Then we were going to go to French Polynesia with a stop in New Zealand to reprovision the boat. The French were scared that there had been Greenpeace protests there before on the sailboat Vega, uh, led by David McTaggart, and that that they considered was bad enough. They didn't want us bringing a big boat there, and so they blew it up in in New Zealand. So. How did you get involved in Greenpeace? This seems from your book as if that event really just fueled your desire to continue to do this work and, and gave you a lot more, I don't know, grit or what, what have you uh, in order to keep doing what you're doing. But how did you start out with Greenpeace to begin with? Right. Well, I agree with your presumption that that event did fuel us. Uh, I remember thinking at the time, well, all of us thought at the time, that if we had scared the first world government of a superpower so badly, a couple old, bunch of old hippies in a rusting trawler, we must be doing something right. Uh, and many of us continued after that. How I got there? Well, I was born to a politically active family. Uh, my grandparents and mother were all subpoenaed to testify before the House on american Activities Committee in the 80s. Uh, I participated in many demonstrations as I was growing up, not only civil rights demonstrations, but anti-Vietnam demonstrations. In 1972, I won the draft lottery, received the number one uh, number. Uh, But fortunately for me, I received a conscientious objector status. I never claimed to be a pacifist, but I said I could never conceive of supporting the U.S. in a war. And at the time, because of my predecessor as first mate on the Clearwater, that's the Hudson River Sloop Clearwater that Pete Seeger and his wife Toshi started in 1969, it had been made uh, federally federally approved conscientious objector duty. So I went to the Clearwater as uh, a mate, came back in 1976 as captain and stayed until 1980. And it was just, for me, it was a perfect fit. I've always loved to sail. I still love to sail today. I come home from three months at sea and go sailing. Uh, and doing something politically useful. That combination for me was was just too hard to beat. So I had read Bob Hunter's book, Warriors of the Rainbow, in the late 1970s while I was on board Clearwater. And I was really entranced by their use of nonviolent direct actions. And I want to emphasize nonviolent because... That's probably the biggest rule in Greenpeace actions is that we do no violence and we do no property damage, zero to the object of the action. I guess it was my experience in the civil rights movement that has led me to feel that if you're trying to change people's minds, violence is not the tool of preference, if you will. And in fact, I don't think it worked. I think a really important part of the civil rights demonstrations in the 60s 
is that they were nonviolent and that the violence was all on the side of the white people in the South that were disagreeing with the stands they were taking. Um, I still feel that way today. It's not, it's not a, something I've ever wanted to cross. I've had violence done to me. We've certainly lost boats in actions. I mean, for a Greenpeace activist, if you manage to get an inflatable crushed in between the dock and the ship, you get brownie points back in Amsterdam. But you don't, but you will, your career will be over if you do any damage or property, any violence or property damage. So tell me a little bit about how Greenpeace has evolved. I mean, you've been now with the organization for, you know, more than 30 years and, uh, and you must have seen a lot of changes. Um, what, where did it, you know, where was it when you started and, and where is it now? And, and what do we have to look forward to in the future? It's hugely different now. Uh, when I started, there were 200 people and you felt like you knew everybody that was doing everything. Now, having been involved for 34 years, I don't even know what half the job titles are. And that's, that's not a joke. I really don't. Now, you know, in the first years, our biggest efforts were doing direct actions. Now about 20% of our efforts go to direct action. But that's probably a good thing. So what do 80% of your efforts go to? Well, the other 80% goes to lobbying, legal work, scientific work, uh, and, and other things that we do. But we do now when we attack a problem, it's not just a matter of going out and doing an action against it. Now it's also lobbying. It's also helping to write laws. It's also doing research. It's also publicity. It's, it's a whole gamut in order to affect the problem from all sides. And I think that if we want to change things, that's what we need to do. I can remember saying back in the 80s, we've got to become really well-focused. Uh, we've got to come become really well-organized and good at what we do, because otherwise we won't have an impact. I mean, look, the corporations we're going against are the biggest in the world. We, we've got we've got to get better at what we do, and, and we have. Um, and... The latest example I'm using of that is we did a fisheries campaign last fall. Now, at this time, we've removed about three-quarters of all the fish in the ocean, and no farmer would ever treat his property the way we treat the oceans because there's no ownership of the oceans. We believe that the oceans are a resource that need to be shared by everybody. But we've, time and time again, fishermen will overfish a species into extinction. And the whole reason the northeast part of the U.S. was settled three, four hundred years ago was because of the cod. And then in the 1960s and 70s, we began industrial fishing with factory trawlers. We wiped out the species in about 25 years, and it still hasn't recovered and looks like it never will. There's a huge resource which could have been feeding people today if we had treated it properly. And we're still not treating the oceans properly. As I said, We've removed about three quarters of all the tuna in the ocean, and tuna companies are just going after the last bit. They're not stepping back and letting it recover. So we were out in the Pacific monitoring fishing vessels, and we found one with shark fins on board, which meant that they were catching shark, cutting the fins off, and then throwing the sharks back in to drown because they can't swim without their fins. It's illegal, but it's still being done. And this boat in particular didn't even have a license to be fishing in the region where it was in. Now, that was really devastating information. But because it was a Taiwanese boat, 
We have an office in Taiwan and fisheries campaigners. We have an office in Brussels where the European community headquarters is and campaigners there. We quickly got Taiwan issued a yellow card, which meant if they don't substantially clean up their act, by now it's only a couple months away, they're going to lose the right to export fish to the European community. That's a huge thing, and no other organization could have done it. And we were only able to do it because we've grown in a pretty sensible way where we can, where everybody working together can make a difference. So tell me a little bit how the decisions get made in terms of what direct actions you're going to do, how you're going to ensure that your goals are met, you know, such that there isn't property damage and nobody gets killed, but you still make enough of a point that you make an impact on whatever it is that you're trying to change. Well, deciding what to do in a broad sense, how much of the organization's resources go towards climate change or fisheries, or we've got a campaign now in the United States to get money out of politics. Any one of these things gets decided by the international board, roughly. Then it gets divided up into countries, who's doing what. By the time it gets down to my level, for instance, I'm told, well, we want you to go out for three months on the Rainbow Warrior and work on a fisheries campaign. Uh, a campaigner will come on board. That's a person whose job 365 days a year it is to know everything about a fishery and how it fits into the world in general. They come out and we discuss what we can do if we want to do an action, if we're just going to do monitoring, and then we go out and do it. So what are some of the issues now that you personally uh, are involved in? Are we, I mean, we're talking about uh, what's going on in terms of ocean warming, uh, glaciers melting, fisheries. What are the issues that you're right now are at the top of your list? Well, the big issue now that's at the top of my list is climate change. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind that unless we get a handle on that catastrophe, um, nothing else will do will amount to very much. I mean, if you... If you kill the oceans, and now I can, I can hear your reader saying, well, what is he talking about, kill the oceans? Well, let me explain. The more CO2 we pump into the atmosphere, about 40% of it is absorbed by the oceans. When it's absorbed by the oceans, it turns to carbonic acid, and that's why the oceans are becoming more acidic, ocean acidification. When I was in Australia three years ago talking to coral reef scientists, some of the best in the world because they have this huge reef in front of them, they were monitoring the effects of uh, warming temperatures and rising acidity and were scared that within 15 to 20 years, the oceans may become too warm and acidic to support coral reef growth. So that would have been about 15 years from now. Well, now what's happening on Australia right now is the Great Barrier Reef is about half bleached out, gone dead. It went from 15 to 20 years to 2 to 3 years. That's changing so fast, and that to me is alarming. Uh, I don't know what will happen to the planet if we change the chemistry ocean so much so that most things that are in it now can't live. I mean, you can have all the whale and seal campaigns you want, but if the oceans are dead, it's not going to matter. And I find that mind-blowing. So is that why you're going after companies that produce fossil fuels and, and so forth? Or, or how do you feel, where do you think the frontier is in terms or, or the, 
um, you know, <laughs> what's the term that I'm looking for in terms of a war? Uh, where's the front, sure, I should say, where's the front of, you know, this sort of war against climate change, if we can call it that? Well, yes, we're going after fossil fuel companies, the fossil fuel industry, because what scientists tell us now, without any speculation or hesitation, is that we have to leave the fossil fuels in the ground. We can't burn anymore. The more coal we burn, the more oil we burn, petroleum, the more uh, gas we burn, the worse global warming gets. And we're already, we're already experiencing the damages of global warming. We just had a four-year drought in California. We're losing coral reefs at an amazing rate. People in Africa are going through drought conditions and, of course, starving because while we're the richest country in the world and we can shield ourselves from some of the worst effects of climate change, the poor countries can't and people are dying. Right now, recently, there was a double-wide, 12-foot-high barbed wire fence put up between India and Bangladesh along its over 1,000-mile border so that when the next big typhoon comes and floods the coastal areas of Bangladesh, the people will need to run to escape, to go to high land. They won't be able to get into India. Mm. It's, it, it's coming. It's happening. Pacific islands are disappearing. This is not something in the future that's going to affect our children. It's going to affect us now. And that's what gets me up every morning. So tell me about, you know, one of the most dramatic experiences that you describe in your book is the Arctic 30 uh, and 2013 and the time that you were in a Russian prison. So let's start with that story. What were you trying to accomplish and what happened? Well, Russia's Siberian oil fields are slowly drying up. The leadership currently feels that to keep selling oil, to keep which is a huge export for Russia, they need to move into the Arctic Ocean, not only for oil, but for minerals. We feel that's a huge mistake. You have to understand that every year, as a basic way of doing business, the Russian oil industry spills five times the amount of oil that BP spilled in the Gulf of Mexico in 2010, I think that was. It's a huge amount that they spill as a routine way of doing business. So first of all, scientists tell us it's not a, it's, this is not a time we need to drill for oil. This is a time we need to build windmills and solar panels. We're also particularly worried about the Russians doing it because they have such a poor track record and they have absolutely no ability to clean up an oil spill that's happened in the ice. There's just no way to do it. They don't have it. Nobody does. So we went there in 2012 with the idea of making a banner action. Now, let me say that I've always thought banner actions are second best. Some of the, one of the best actions we've ever done was taking the inflatable out and getting in between the harpoon gun and the whale. That doesn't need a caption. That explains perfectly why we're there and what's going on. But sometimes we do need a banner to explain things or a caption. So we went up there in 2012, put people on the on the side of the rig. This rig, you have to understand, is a huge thing. 
It's got steel wall sides that go right down to the bottom of the ocean in about 125 feet of water and come up another 100 feet. And then most of the interior of the thing is filled with large stones. This is to keep the ice from getting to the piping that's going down under the, under the, under the ocean floor. We would never, in anybody's wildest imagination, think that we could take over an oil rig with a couple hundred men on board with, with two climbers. It's silly, but we hold a banner up. We get a little publicity. We try to explain people what's going on. It was with that attitude that we went back in 2013, and when the climbers approached the rig, things changed instantly because they fire, started firing machine guns at us. They, um, they had put a couple Coast Guard inflatables in the water, and they started cutting our boats with knives, something we absolutely won't do uh, to them. They, start, they took the climbing ropes of the climbers and pulled them way out from the sides of the rig and let them slam back in so that they, they were getting injured. So they came down. This w went on for about 45 minutes. They came down. They were arrested. By this time, our other boats were in the dangers of sinking, so they came back out to the Rainbow Warrior. Uh, we sort of had a standoff during the day. They fired shots across our bow, which is a very accepted marine maritime tradition of saying, pay attention to what I'm saying to you. Um, but nothing, nothing else really happened. And it wasn't until the next evening, 36 hours after the action, we weren't going away, that they flew out with a helicopter, uh, special forces, abseiled out of the helicopter, took over the ship, and arrested us. Uh, what they did that night was to round up the crew, search them, search their cabins, steal all their booze, get completely hammered. So we had about uh, a dozen Russian special forces soldiers, all in balaclavas and no insignia, running around the boat, wasted. <laughs> Which I thought actually at the time was, was pretty amusing, although none of my crew seemed to share my enthusiasm. But, I, you know, when discipline breaks down on a ship, traditionally, the crew goes for the alcohol, and that's, that's exactly what they did. But then they towed us back to Murmansk. It's a four-day tow, and not very fast. And, but again, the feeling to me at the time was, well, it's another day, at, another day in the office. I mean, we'd been at my first action in Soviet Union was in 1983. I did another in 1995, and we had been arrested on the north slope of... Russia three or four times before, and they tow us in, fill out forms, yell at us, and we go away. This time when we got in, uh, the first people on the ship were our, our embassy officials and mine, a guy from St. Petersburg said, I think you're in trouble. I said, no, don't, don't worry about it. He said, well, I hope you're right. And about an hour later, they rounded us all up and said, well, we're taking you into shore for a couple hours, bring a toothbrush or something like that. They took us into shore and immediately told us that we were being done for piracy, which was a 10 to 15-year prison sentence in Russia. And this is under a judicial system where 99.99% of all people in Russia are found guilty at trial. Trial is pretty much of a rubber stamp. Once you're in detention, you're done for. Uh, and we were told we were all getting 10 to 15 years, and we better start learning Russian. I never really thought so, but it produces stress and anxiety, to yeah. say the least. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't till it wasn't for a month that I was actually able to get a meeting with a lawyer or call my wife at home. 
And uh, it was about another two weeks after that that we had the additional charge of hooliganism thrown onto us. And that was a good sign because there's no way for them to take a charge away. They just don't have the mechanism to do it. But we thought if we're prosecuted for hooliganism, which we knew that the Russian government likes to use pretty much against anybody that's doing anything it doesn't like, that the prison sentence would be reduced down from one to seven years. Hooliganism is what they threw a pussy riot in jail for and many other dissidents. Two weeks later, we had, we were, well, at that time, we were moved down to St. Petersburg. I have the distinction of having stayed in one of, in Europe's oldest prison built in 1860, uh, called the Kresge, which is a, it's a nice place. Leave it at that. And um, two weeks later, at our new detention hearings, you get a two months of detention, then you have to have a hearing for another three-month detention. We were given uh, bail and uh, released to, under city arrest for a month, at which point um, the Duma issued a clemency, which they do every 10 years in Russia. And I think really at the end of the day, the person that had decided to arrest us into se September knew that the clemency would be coming out and they'd somehow get us into us and get rid of us at that time because the Sochi Olympics were about to come up. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that they didn't want us in jail for that. It would just detract from Sochi. But they wanted to teach us a lesson. They don't want us going back there and protesting their proposed oil expansion into the Arctic. Now, if you had asked me at the beginning of that trip, uh, you might end up in jail for a couple months, but it'll dramatically increase the visibility of the campaign, I'd say, well, that's, that's part of the deal. No problem. If somebody had said, you might go to jail for 10 to 15 years, I, I wouldn't get out of bed. I'd say, fine, just see you later. Have a good time. But uh, it would, did work out for the better. And whenever I describe the Russian judicial system, and it's not in always the most uh, pleasant or, or good terms, I have to point out that here in the United States, we incarcerate over double the per capita population that they do in Russia. And I think that our judicial system where poor people are forced into copying a plea and not having trial is really nothing to smile at either. So I think all of us need to improve our judicial systems. It's a really dramatic story. And, you know, you're the captain of the ship. So I want to just end on getting your thoughts of, of what that means in terms of your responsibilities, how you approach your work and so forth. So, I mean, imagine as the captain of the, fit, of the ship that, you know, you're, you're responsible for the safety of your crew. So, how do you feel about that, knowing that you're going to be taking people into situations that might be unpredictable, to say the least, and you know, possibly quite dangerous? Yeah, it, it weighs on you. It absolutely does. We do a lot of practicing. Uh, and in fact, some of the things we do, while they might seem crazy to you, we have practiced a number of times so that we feel good about it. I mean, one of the things we did one day in the 80s was uh, jump in front of a U.S. warship doing 18 knots and let it go by a couple feet away. But that was really not that dangerous in action. That was just a, an interesting way to wake up in the morning. Um, but yeah, you don't want anybody hurt. That's why losing Fernando Pereira when the Rainbow Warriors blown up was probably one of the worst things I've ever gone through. Uh, he's the only crew member I've lost. We've lost some others due to heart attacks and actions, but not never from an aggressive action 
uh, about a year ago, uh, the Spanish Guardia Seville rammed one of our inflatables with theirs, knocked a girl out, and her leg was broken. And that was, that's not a good thing. Uh, you know, we're trying to make the planet better, not, not injure and kill ourselves. So yeah, I, you think about it. So one last question. And, and before I ask, I just want to remind our listeners that your book, Greenpeace Captain, My Adventures in Protecting the Future of Our Planet is now available at booksellers everywhere. And it's really a fascinating read. I have to say, I, I learned a lot. And I also worried about <laughs> the both the planet and your crew a lot uh, during the, my reading of this book. But now as we move forward, as it seems as though climate change is inevitable, it's upon us, um, what do you think is Greenpeace's role moving forward into the future? Well, climate change is inevitable, but to the amount that it changes the, the planet is dependent on what we do today. The more we can do today, the less we'll have to do tomorrow. Naturally, here in the United States, we'll be able to adapt easier than the poorer countries. But th this is absolutely no time to stop. Well, Greenpeace's role? Well, I have to remember that there's a sizable portion of our legislatures in Washington who are still climate change deniers. How, how that can be just blows my mind. With the science, what's happened already to deny climate change is inconceivable. So I think there's obviously a role for Greenpeace to keep illustrating the effects of climate change and trying to explain through actions to people why it's so critically important that we do everything we can to leave the fossil fuels in the ground. Peter Wilcox, thank you for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you. Okay, captains definitely have stories. And they're sobering stories. They, all the, the discussion on our nuclear testing in the Pacific just blew my mind. Yeah, I mean, we didn't even get, you should see my question list. We got to like question three and then it was what he was talking about was just blowing my mind. And I felt like, well, we need to hear more about this. And, you know, look, I don't know if, I, I highly doubt that the government intentionally nuked the Marshall Islands in order to see the effect on human beings. That's that's a that's a bold claim, although I do know that there are some lawsuits that are being filed by the people from the Marshall Islands against the U.S. government. Uh, I do know that there are people who write about the ethics of what happened uh, in a very damaging way uh, from the perspective of the government. Um, and, you know, I can imagine how a person who literally has held the dying bodies of the people from these islands would feel very strongly about what happened. What do you think his overall feelings are after 30 years of this? Did you feel like he was ready for even more fight? Yeah. I mean, it seemed to me like he was ready to get back on the ship. He is so stereotypically a ship captain. <laughs> you know, he just seemed like, you know, uncomfortable on land. He needs to get back into the sea. Um, and, you know, I, I actually there I think there are that's a special type of person. I, you know, I'm the kind of person that I can handle being on a ship for a short period of time. But boy, do I like to get back on land. And there's some people who obviously like to stay at sea. But I also think that he has a fire lit under him. And I don't know if this is something that happened you know, in the last 10 years or the last two years or since 1985 when, you know, his ship was bombed. But he certainly feels
feels as if, you know, things have really gone awry in terms of the course that the world is taking. And we need to right that shit, pardon the pun. Is there a place for the Rainbow Warrior in today's society? I mean, I remember Rainbow Warrior making more news in the 80s and 90s when we didn't see so much uh, coverage of environmental issues. But now it's m- closer to the foray. We can definitely say action around climate does not meet the conversation around it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting how he was talking about how Greenpeace has grown and expanded so much since the 80s. So maybe in the past, you know, these kinds of actions were pulling our focus more because there weren't other things going on that Greenpeace was involved in. Um, And now there are all these other things that, you know, are so things are getting a little bit diluted. But I still think that I mean, they're certainly still very active. I mean, it was just a couple years ago that he was in this Russian prison because of the actions that they were taking on the oil rigs and, you know, the off the coast of Russia. So, you know, I feel like there's still obviously a lot of things that they want to accomplish and a lot of things that, that, that we want them to accomplish. And maybe the environment news is being, you know, saturated with stores, stories of the effects of climate change and not so much of people, you know, chaining themselves to oil rigs. Um, but that doesn't mean that doesn't have a place. And I, I think one of the things that is really interesting is that um, in some ways they are uniquely positioned to go you know, and see what is happening, you know, in places like the fisheries or in, you know, the Arctic and and various other aspects of related to ocean life. Um, So I I think there is a real important place that and role that they still play in our society. Um, And, you know, I, I also think that, that maybe we are becoming more careful about putting ourselves in harm's way. And maybe now, you know, people just aren't taking the kind of risks that get you coverage on a front page newspaper. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, because I certainly don't want to lose any um, members of Greenpeace or, or people that work with them. I mean, so often we talk to people that are scientifically minded, that are measured, that, you know, toll away in, you know, underground labs and locations, and they fight the fight with their mind. It was so refreshing to hear stories of somebody that's that's out there, you know, not worried about experiment. Yeah, no, not at all. And, 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 you know, I remember when I first um, introduced myself to him when he, you know, he came in and we recorded in my home studio. And, um, you know, his first sentence was like, I'm not a scientist. I, I can't talk about the science. And, you know, I, I, I respect that because a lot of people wouldn't necessarily play that role. Um, and yet I feel like there's so much we can learn from him and his experiences and the fact that he's been around, you know, for so long and sort of just seen how policies have uh, had effects on so many different aspects of the ocean. And as you said, we only touched upon a few of the stories that are wrapped up in the book. So remind our listeners about the book. Yeah, it's called Greenpeace Captain by Peter Wilcox with Ronald Weiss, My Adventures in Protecting the Future of Our Planet. But really, they are about the adventures that people have on the Rainbow Warrior and how that leads to, you know, people getting fired up about these causes and how fired up we should all be uh, about some of the things that have happened in the last few decades. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. We'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Herring Chang, Nick Cadillac, Sean Johnson, David Noel, John Kirk, and Jordan Miller. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, pictures of yourself on your favorite ship or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. 
And once again, today's episode is sponsored by Audible, with an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at audible.com slash inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by our rainbow warrior, Adam Isaac, in cooperation with The Climate Desk. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer, Rian Chien. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.